Hello all, and welcome back to another episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. My name is Jennifer Hahn. And I'm Sarah Callen. And the Strategic Whimsy Experiment is a weekly gathering place filled with conversations about the films that shape our lives. Today, we are going to be reviewing the newest Wes Anderson film, The French Dispatch. All right, Sarah, do you want to kick us off with an IMDb summary for The French Dispatch? Sure. A love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. All right, so let's start off with our one-sentence summaries for the French Dispatch. Mine is uh, journalism as interpreted by Wes Anderson. (laughs) Yes, which is quite a world that he has created. It sure is. My summary is, who knew the world needed a Benicio del Toro growl? Uh, Yes, the world did need that. I'm so glad. Very endearing. (laughs) It was. And we got it multiple times too, which is so nice. Oh, yes. (laughs) All right. Let's start off with our initial thoughts of the French Dispatch. So Sarah, as a Wes Anderson fanatic, (laughs) what did you think of the French Dispatch? I loved it. I had a great time with it. Uh, I, when the movie started and like you, I mean, in the first like 30 seconds. I was like, oh my God, I love this. I'm so happy. So I'm really not like the most impartial person in the world when it comes to this movie because I just, there's something about Wes Anderson movies that warm my soul. And French Dispatch did that. Um, I I think certain parts of it are stronger than others. I It's definitely not his best film, but I just, I loved it. I loved how it was structured. I thought it was super interesting the way um, everything was framed. And he made some really unusual creative choices uh, in this that were a bit bananas, but I was okay with it. I was, (laughs) I was strapped in and along for the ride. Um, Yeah, I, I had a great, great time with it. And it was just fun to even see Wes Anderson playing with some different uh, mediums in this film and and the way that he kind of subverted some expectations as well with what you're, you know, usually in for in a Wes Anderson film. So yeah, had a great time. Loved it. Big Wes Anderson fan. So that none of that is surprising. <laughs> what did it's, you think of it? This movie is very him. It's almost like he just popped off and went full on whatever he wanted <laughs> to do with this, yep. uh, which made for kind of an overwhelming experience is the sentiment that I had while watching this movie. There are just so many characters and set pieces and they're all larger than life. It was like a a overstimulation visually, cognitively, from a storytelling perspective. It's just so much to take in. I feel like I need to watch this again to like kind of catch my breath and um piece it all together. I think some of his other films maybe structurally have felt a little bit stronger and more coherent, although he's kind of leaning into this like vignette uh, style with these three sections and um, these kind of wandering plot lines into all these different worlds and people and interesting characters along the way. So uh, I 
feel like cognitively I can appreciate Wes Anderson's creativity and just the the exploration and the stylistic choices that he makes is just so fresh and always just a thrill to watch. Um, as far as a, a entertainment experience for me, this was a lot. This was a lot. Uh, I think by the third act, I was like, all right, I think I've been Wes Anderson out, but we still got a whole third act, so we're just going to trudge through it. So um, yeah, it was it was a lot to take in. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really was. Uh, when it was over, I was like, oh my God, I need to watch that again because I missed so much, you know, mm-hmm. there's, I, there is so much. And that's just one of the features of Wes Anderson films is he just crams a lot in there. And there's always something interesting to, to look at or listen to or, or all of that. But I, I did feel similarly, uh, with that third act. I I think the third vignette is the weakest uh, of the three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because by that point in the film, you're, you do feel that overwhelm and like, Oh my gosh, what did we just go through? And now we need to learn this whole new story. Oh Lord. I don't know if I'm ready. Um, So yeah, I do wonder if there would have been a way to, to make that third act or that third vignette more interesting or exciting um, so that we wouldn't feel maybe that level of fatigue. Um, Or maybe like you said, like it just, the first two maybe needed just a tiny bit less. And so then we would have the the mental and emotional capacity to go into the third one uh, full and really, really take in everything. Cause I'm sure there's a bunch of, really like important and interesting and and needy things that come in that third vignette. I was just, I I was, I was kind of tapped out by that point. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I think to other Wes Anderson films and there's, there's usually a lot going on, but it's, it, it either thematically or structurally feels more coherent and, there's a progression at play. There's um, either sometimes a set of characters or a group of characters that we can latch onto that um, maybe pop up again later. So that there feels like there's this thread that we can follow. Um, and that was just a very different structural approach that he's taking in this film with the three minettes. Um, I'm sure thematically there's there's a lot that's that's coherent in what each vignette is trying to tackle. But I, I, I feel the same way. By the third, I was like, I, my, my, man, my mind is overstuffed with all the other things I just experienced. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot that happens in the voiceovers of, of the narrator or one of the characters telling about events that have happened in a very quick pace. And also visually a lot of shots happening or set pieces one after the other that happen at a quick pace as well. Um, that I think is signature of a style, but when it's so much cognitive that that's new, um, can feel like you're just left breathless. Um, there, there was almost like three different worlds that we needed to dive into and keep all the people straight and the, the, the facts straight about the story and, cognitively it was just it was a lot I think too at the second I was fully engaged with the second story 
Um, but by the third, it's like, okay, I don't know if I can take new information in. Yeah. 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 I, and I, I love the way that this film was structured, like as if we're going through this last, uh, this last issue of this magazine. And I thought that that was really brilliant way to do it. I, I do wonder if it would have been better to have almost like a, a, a palette cleanser between each vignette and we could just like catch our breath for a second and then we'll dive into the next one. Um, I, I think that, you know, we'd, we'd get the basically like the title card saying like, okay, we're going into this next section. But I, I wonder if we had had just a couple of minutes of of something else, or uh, I, don't, I don't know, just spending time maybe with with Bill Murray's character for a few minutes because he's kind of the consistent one throughout, uh, just to kind of like anchor us and like, okay, this yes. is what we're doing, and then we can dive into the next one. If it would have felt better pacing wise for us, and then we wouldn't have felt as exhausted uh, by that third vignette. Yeah, and also we would have felt like we we visited this world, we're back into this the the realm of the familiar and getting our bearings before we venture mm-hmm. off into the next. And I, I think about the structure of um Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think does what you're talking about, which is it it's kind of the story within a story, but we we kind of pop out of the story to the present day where I think the two dudes are having dinner in the hotel. Um, and there's a like small conversation that they'll have and reflection on it. And then we're off into the second part of the story and back in the past of when he was, uh, working as a bubble in the, in the Grand Budapest Hotel. So there were the kind of these moments for us to like zoom out for a second, hear some reflections from him. It's a little bit slower. There's visually less for us to take in. Uh, and then we are, you know, off on our next segment of the adventure. I think that would have worked better. Yeah, and and I think that also maybe the the problem with the the third vignette is even how that's structured a little bit, um, it because it it's you know the the writer on the TV set, and then we also have him in the prison and doing all of that stuff, but it's also a. Uh, a written piece that will appear in this magazine. So it feels a little bit less clear what's happening in that third vignette than it did in the first two. Like the first two is very, very clear what was going on. We knew even like what times we were in and it, I don't know, they were just very straightforward. I feel like the third is the most convoluted, which again, like that is not what you want at that point of in the movie. So I think if, that was my biggest complaint about it was that third vignette. I think pretty much everything else is solid. And I, I wish that third one had just a little bit more uh, refinement before mm-hmm. we got it. Yep. Yep. That in and of itself is a story within a story within a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got layers yeah. here. Many, yep. many layers of stories. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I feel like there were – maybe this is just how I felt, but – it. I'm thinking back now. I feel like there were also more characters that we mm-hmm. – more main characters central to the story that we were keeping track of. Like I feel like in the the previous two vignettes, there was – there's primarily one or two that we we were anchored in with some side characters that were also prominent. But we we had our two to invest in. But Benicio Del Toro on the first one. 
uh, Timothy Chalamet's character and Francis McDormand's characters in the second one. You know, like there was these anchor points and we were kind of following them. Um, whereas in the third one, I feel like there were just so many characters to keep track of as well. Yeah, yeah. And and I think in the first two vignettes, the like the big name stars were the primary ones that we were following. And then in the in the third, you know, you have you have Jeffrey Wright, uh, and you have like Edward Norton in like a weird side role and like a yeah. bunch of other like super like well known actors in that third vignette. Yeah. And so it was just yeah, it w- it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, should I be following them? Wait, who? Uh-huh. Where? Yep. Yeah. And like yeah. Leif Schreiber is in it too. And yes. Yeah. It's, and uh, Willem third Dafoe. Was a lot. Yes. I forgot about Willem Dafoe. Oh, yeah. Oh, that third one was so packed full. Yeah, that was too much. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if we can zoom out for a hot sec, this movie is so star-studded. It's incredible. It's yes. incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it felt like every new section, it's like, oh, yes, you're always in a Wes Anderson movie. Why, why didn't I think to look for you earlier? And the amount of – I mean, this truly is like an ensemble cast film. It's insane, um, which mm-hmm. I think contributes to feeling overwhelming. But also we've got all these big-name stars who are often collaborators with Wes Anderson that are just – here here for the journey here for the adventure oh yeah yeah and I, I think for for me that's always part of the fun it, it feels like a, a group of friends getting back together again and just making something absolutely incredible um I think one of the things that I was most surprised by is that uh Jason Schwartzman had such a a small role uh he was he was the artist in this and he had maybe a few speaking lines and that was it and it's so interesting because he's been so prominent in some of Wes Anderson's other works and he helped write this as well um so I expected more from him but it was also interesting just seeing like Elizabeth Moss who is a phenomenal actress Mm -hmm. being in such a small role and I Mm -hmm. I was surprised by it they all did wonderful of course but it's just interesting to see how uh, these stars were kind of distributed throughout the film. And uh, some of that was a little counterintuitive, I think, but it also made things more interesting. Like, okay, where is where is this person going to show up? I'm, I'm not sure where they're going <laughs> to fall into the story. You know, because like Edward Norton has been in so many of his films too. And I was like, where is he? When is he going to show up? So when he finally showed up in that third mm-hmm. vignette, it was satisfying to see him, but like yes. checking off your your quota of Wes Anderson yeah. uh, stars, <laughs> the Wes yep. Anderson friends group. Basically, yeah. yep. I had my Wes Anderson bingo card and was just, you know, <laughs> yeah, checking always fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I expected the Owen Wilson and Bill Murray section to to play more of a role in this movie. You know, it kind of bookends the film. Uh, and I, I was waiting for us to revisit that a little bit more, and we never do. So that was that kind of subverted my expectations as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I, I also think, like, especially for those two characters, Bill Murray's character and Owen Wilson's characters, like, it just made sense, though. Like, even though they were these short little snippets, I was like, oh, yeah, that was the appropriate 
role for both of them. So that's also satisfying to see. Uh, and that happened with quite a few of the characters. It's like, oh, yep, nope, that's perfect for them. Uh, and I just, I, I love it when you watch a movie and you can tell that an actor just fits well in that role and it doesn't feel out of place or awkward with them portraying whatever character they are portraying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned in your initial thoughts was around the way that Wes Anderson is able to play with and uh, exert some of his creative energy in different types of mediums in this film. Talk a little bit more about that. I'm curious your thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting about the the three vignettes is that you get uh, something kind of different out of all of them. And, and you get this maybe unusual medium from all three. Um, and I, I loved that, that just kind of like changed as we went. So like in the first one, uh, we see Tilda Swinton's character basically like giving a speech about, uh, Moses and Simone. Um, and like, you wouldn't think that that's necessarily like the right vehicle to be telling the story, but it worked. And then it gets a little bit weirder in the second one. And we see these, uh, like departures to a stage play of whatever's happening and then in the third one everything just goes off the rails and we get to see these animate animated uh Mm -hmm. retellings of all of the action which i also thought was really interesting that the action doesn't happen with like live people but the action happens with animation and i just i thought that that was such a, a counterintuitive way to do it because you think you would want like the action to be like the live people and doing all of the things but instead we got these really interesting cartoons which I think was it was just interesting it it was fun to to subvert the expectations but then you also had these other moments kind of like peppered throughout where like people would just like pause in the middle of the action and we would just pan by a bunch of people doing or just (laughs) like mid motion um (laughs) and then of course he flipped back and forth between black and white and color all throughout as well so there's just a bunch of these interesting creative choices kind of peppered throughout uh that I I think made it more interesting and it, it made me want to pay more attention uh for me, like I didn't feel overwhelmed by it, but it, it made me focus a little bit more uh, just to see like, okay, what other like weird thing is he going to do next? Uh, and it's also just fun sometimes when, when somebody just kind of shows off their creativity and goes, well, I want to throw some animation in here. So I'm going to, <laughs> and it worked somehow. I don't know how it worked, but he pulled it off. I think. It's almost like he has this, uh, filmmaker's palette of colors and he is just going to town on all the different types of combinations and um there's just a playfulness i think in his creativity in this movie and and what he is exploring i specifically was thinking about the animated section when you were talking about the different mediums i think it's the most um the biggest like visual difference that we see in this film and even the 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 stylistic choices he made for the anim- animated section um, and them being more like pencil line drawings with just like simple color shading in it. 
and um, that visual detail that felt like in line with the theme of journalism or like magazine and cartoons, you know, like it, it was intentional in its visual choice of all the different animation styles he could have chosen, um, that he chose that one. And I was reading later that there, there was, um, a homage in the credit scene, I believe, to a lot of the writers for The New Yorker. And mm-hmm. um, that makes so much sense to me, thinking back to the animated scene now, because that visual style is very similar to like the pencil line drawings that are often on the covers of The New Yorker. And just those like down to those little intentional choices was pretty neat to see. And I think the other fun thing about those drawings is that he hired local artists to do that too. Um, And that's just another one of those like little themes uh, that he often does in his films is he'll, he'll hire local artisans or artists or whatever Mm, to, to contribute something to the film. And I think that that's super special as well. That's really neat. I love that. I love that. I love that also those animation scenes were like the frame rates were pretty low. It was, it wasn't this like super Mm -hmm. smooth animation, but it, it kind of mirrored that, uh, choppiness that felt, felt like it harkened back to like old school animation where, uh, you see the action unfolding, but you can kind of detect the, the frames changing between each of the shots. Um, so even those little intentional choices too were pretty neat to see. And I think that's one of the the fun things about Wes Anderson films is they're always you, you never know what time period they're they're set in. You don't know what year it's set in, but you just know that it's in the past. And it's this like it's this Wes Anderson version of the nostalgic past. And so I think a lot of those little choices, like obviously you see it in the in the sets and the costumes mm. and mm-hmm. all of that. But I, I love that we even got to see that in in the animation and even in um, those, those like breaks between vignettes, you know, every time we were entering a new one and it would tell us a little bit about who we were going into or um, the, the little doodles of, you know, Bill Murray's character (laughs) or whoever it was like, it it all felt very like old timey. uh, And it, it has this presence of nostalgia, even though this is, nowhere near what reality was like um there's this old timiness that that just kind of brings joy with it as well uh I don't know how he always manages to do that but Mm. there's this interesting nostalgia I think that is always present in his films that's very true um it's but it's like this this fantasy world that is mm-hmm. is inspired by reality but more colorful more playful more whimsical than reality likely was it's like this this um little place that you you fall down the rabbit hole to get to and you're back somewhere um in the past but like a more more uh fun and playful version of the past Mm-hmm. Yep, a more beautiful version of the past for yes. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. It was also interesting to see those this animated scenes and the line drawings there because it, it in a lot of ways the 
the world that he creates in his films feel like they could be drawings and and pieces of art that are um, creating this this like visual world for us to like dive into, and we just happen to get to see the live action version of it. You know what I mean? Like, um, mm-hmm. because because I think a lot of his characters and set pieces are so dis- visually distinct that they feel like they could fit in a fantastical like cartoon world. You know, and they've somehow we get the the chance to see them brought to life live action. Um, but that there's also some version of this that of these stories that exist in like um, this cartoon book or something like that that's like hidden beneath the bed or somewhere you know in your like treasure trove of the bottom of your um, big treasure chest or something like that like there's just this uh, whimsy that's associated with it that I think uh, maybe maybe and maybe it's what you were talking about earlier that there's this nostalgia and. Um, all of that is associated sometimes with, with old school methods of communicating art and ideas, which I sometimes think about in terms of like storybooks or cartoon books or whatnot, you know, I don't know how to describe it. No, no, I think, I think you're right. And I, I think it's, it's the, the color palettes, but I also think it's the, it's the intricacies of, of the sets and the, uh, the oddness of all of the characters because none of his characters are normal ever and so I think because they're so quirky and they're so like bold and larger than life uh, yeah I, I could totally see like a, a, a storybook version of his his films they would translate beautifully because I mean everything you need for a storybook he's already handled from the, the art piece of it. So yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Mm, yeah. It's almost like oftentimes with, with uh, storybooks that are super visual or whatnot, you have more capacity to dream up worlds and set pieces and, and um, larger than life characters. Uh, and then bringing it's almost like that was a stepping stone to bring it to the big screen because who would dream up these complicated, <laughs> intricate set pieces yeah. on their own for a live action film? You know, um, only someone who's got the imag- like the big enough imagination to dream it up and then visually make it happen and then film it. You know, like the the cost to do that is so much higher yeah. when doing a live action film versus creating drawings in a storybook or doing it even in animation, you know? And that leap between the imagined world that he he has in his mind um, to creating it in real life is, is so much larger than had he done that to just through animation or through visual drawing. So maybe that's what it is too. And even the way that he goes about bringing these things to life like especially during this one I just kept watching and thinking how much money did this cost to make like there right there were (laughs) so many opportunities to just like save costs and cut corners and he just doesn't in his films and I, I think that's one of the things that I'm always blown away by is that there was a cheaper way to make this film like I mean, obviously, like if you use lesser known stars and all of that, like you can save a ton of money. But even 
the number of sets that there were and I, they were all so intricate and so different and my goodness, it, it's, it's extravagant. I'm sure how much it cost, but you can also see just the, the importance of not cutting corners on things like that and, and making sure that the sets are as, as beautifully intricate as they are, because it always pays off, especially when it's, when you're, uh, when it looks like you're looking in like a dollhouse and you can see, like, especially in the beginning, the, the waiter with all of those drinks uh, on his tray and he's walking through this whole building and you can see him, but then you can also see the man sweeping and the cat, um, like on the ground that's walking around and all of these mm-hmm. little details. There is a cheaper way to do that, but this was the most visually appealing way and the best way for us to be like plopped into this fantastical world. And so I just, uh, I love, I love, 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 love that he spends so much money <laughs> on his films and it's not, it's not CGI. It's not, you know, this like, it's not like a Marvel movie where it's all of these yeah. other worlds, but it's these very, very, um, like tactile things it's physical sets it's you know the textures of the clothing it's it's all of these things that you can you can almost touch it even though you're watching a film and I think that that pays off every single time even when he uses say a green screen it's purely an artistic Mm -hmm. choice and he's not trying to hide it at all you know I think there's that segment where (laughs) Owen Wilson is on like the bus or the, some van of some kind and they do a green screen of like the the scenery passing by the windows and then it immediately changes to night or something like that and it's it's not even trying to to be realistic it's it's leaning into that potentially like that nostalgia of when they used to have to film set pieces like that and um it, he's he's using it purely creatively and not necessarily because of a tactical financial decision. It it is serving the vision that he had for those two shots, you know? Um, So even if he isn't building out the set piece, it's for a very intentional reason too. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yep. Everything has purpose and everything is intentional in this. And that's the reason why I want to watch it again because I know that I missed – you know, <laughs> little bits of like details and, and, you know, like, especially between uh, the, the vignettes, there was always like text on the side of the, of the screen. And I just, I wanted to pause it and I wanted to read all of the things. <laughs> um, so it's just yeah. little things like that. Like you didn't have to do that, but he did. And there's so much extra meaning and these extra fun little, I don't know, I don't know what's in them because I didn't pause the movie to read them, but probably some like inside jokes or, you know, just these fun little funny things um, that are in there. And there's always more to see. And I love that. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. so different. Very different from the landscape today. One of the things that I would love to be able to watch the movie again and try and pick up on more is that the specific decision points he makes around using black and white versus color. Um, I'm curious if you have thoughts on like potential 
meanings or or moments that he chooses to switch from one to the other. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, that's one of those that I wanted to watch and really try and pay more attention to. Um, I just know that every time it switched to color, like it it made me like focus even more. So it was one of those like, oh, we're in color now. Okay, so I like really need to pay attention. What do I need to find in this frame or, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I also think that it's interesting that we start, because uh, we start with Moses and Simone's story. And so he is an artist. And it, it was just fascinating because you would see his paintings in black and white, and then it would switch to color. And it, w- it looked different in color than I expected it to be. The colors used weren't what I thought would be used. So it's just fascinating to see like, oh, my, my perspective on this was different because I was first introduced to it in black and white, and then you flip to color. Uh, and so then my, my feelings toward that piece of art changed. And then it was just kind of fun for that that trend to kind of continue uh, throughout and just see like, oh, okay, these are the colors that are used in here. You know, in the in the second story, you know, Francis McDormand's uh, jacket being red, yes. and that was always so visually interesting. This bright red jacket in the middle of whatever else was going on. So, yeah, I'm sure that there was probably more of a rhyme or reason to it, but I know especially in the first two, it really caused me to, to kind of like sit up and pay attention. Um, the thought that I had was I, I wondered, cause we kind of flip back and forth in time in all of them. And so I didn't know if the, the color was like present day and then black and white was flashback, but that I don't think was consistent across. So I don't think that that's what that signified. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I'm just kind of left with him going, okay, pay attention to this. Or, you know, it was a break from like, okay, we've been in black and white for a while. Here's a pop of color. Like in the, in the third vignette, uh, I loved that we got a split screen for a little while. And uh, when they had the, when they were eating the meal, and the people around the table were in black and white and the food was all in color. And I thought that that was really interesting. So, yeah, I think he was just he was kind of just playing around and <laughs> helping us focus on what he wanted us to see and then helping kind of break up the the potential monotony of of black and white by throwing us a pop of color and then whoop, here we go back to black and white. So, I don't know. What did what did you think of of all of that and the switching. I I kept trying to see if there was a pattern as well. And I think at a certain point I gave up and was like, just enjoy the experience. <laughs> Stop trying to analyze it. Yeah. Um, but I had a similar original thought process as you as, because I think most of the time in films, our expectation is that black and white is a flashback or something in the past or a memory or a dream. And that color is the present. And like you, I, I think it's it was used to emphasize certain moments. It was usually in some some dramatic moment or a reveal or a certain like culmination of like a sequence that it would change to color. 
I was like, oh, is this his version of like an exclamation point or use of italics or bold in text or something like that? Because it, it we because and because his sets are so vibrant that we're after a certain period of time where it's in black and white, we're almost craving to see what it all looks like and to take it in. And so it kind of played with my um, emotions and desires a little bit of feeling like, oh, but just like give it to us in color. And then it was in some dramatic moment or defining moment that it would switch. And then it was, it's almost like a heightened experience um, where in a way we were given a whole nother dimension of senses to, to take in. It's like eating only with your uh, taste buds first and then being able to smell all of a sudden. Um, just everything was able to be heightened in that specific moment that he was trying to emphasize. So um, I think it was used primarily to, to as emphasis for certain scenes or moments that were particularly important. And and what amazed me about the the moments in black and white was that the the sets were still interesting. You know, like um you you can tell that there was still so much intentionality that went into the sets even when they were in black and white. And um I also just love that Wes Anderson is known for his use of color and his color palettes and he chose to film a good portion of this film in black and white. And so again just that like subverting expectations of you think you're you're ready for this crazy color palette like I'll give it to you but also for a while I'm going to deprive you so that you can appreciate what I've done even more. And I thought that was just a brilliant move. I know it sure kept me on my toes. Mm. That's very true. It's really interesting. I also wonder if it was meant to focus our attention too on storyline as well. Like I found myself in a lot of scenes, like there's just so much to take in that almost because it was in black and white, I was able to focus a little bit more on the people and the events that were taking place too. So maybe it was also a focusing tactic for certain like rising action details are important for us to really, really capture and not, not get distracted by all the things that were happening on screen, all the colors. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause there were, you know, a million things going on. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Other things that we wanted to talk about with this movie. Do you want to talk about uh, some of the characters? So we talked yes. pretty significantly about the third vignette. Uh, yeah. What did you think of the the other two? So one of the things that I uh, jotted down that I felt most prominently with this movie, more than some of his other films, was how much the characters are larger than life, but somehow still feel grounded and resonant. They haven't lost their humanity. And the scene that really stood out to me was with Frances McDormand. And I think she has a line where she says, I'm sad. And someone was like, but not lonely. She was like, no, not lonely, but I'm sad. And I thought that it was just, that was just a, a representative example of how these characters are quirky and weird and odd and nothing like most of the humans that we experience on a daily basis, but they have these 
distinctly human moments that I think make them really relatable. Um, you know, the, the scenes where Benicio del Toro, um, as an, he's like playing this tortured artist and you can sense how much he feels the pressure to deliver and that there's all this expectation around his artistic genius that has been played up that he didn't really even ask for. Um, but that Adrian Brody's character kind of like marketed him around the world and now he's he has this prominence and he feels this pressure to live up to those expectations. And I feel like that is also just such a distinctly human uh, experience and trait. And while these characters are just wild and so different from us, they are yet also so similar to us. So um, I felt that sentiment a lot during this movie, I think more than some of the other movies of his that I've experienced. So I thought that was noteworthy. Yeah. And uh, along those same lines, what, what really stood out to me is that this movie is so, you know, joyful visually. And even the music is, is whimsical and, and wonderful and, and oftentimes upbeat. Uh, but it's also tackling some some really sad things and sometimes even some pretty mm -hmm. like dark things. And yeah. I just love that juxtaposition that it's not just this like glossy Hollywood, everything is beautiful and perfect, but it's it's beautiful and imperfect and hard things happen and, and characters are grappling with things and, you know, Francis McDormand's character is sad and uh, Jeffrey Wright's character is lonely and you know, it's these very human emotions that that we're all dealing with, and there's 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 loss, and there's fear, and there's death in in this whole movie. And I I love that that pairing of of such beauty and such joy, while also confronting some really real uh, and often uncomfortable topics or emotions. And I, I feel like all of that was was really well balanced and it didn't feel too heavy handed either way because it could have been really, really easy for, you know, some of those those more difficult emotions to to feel like they're not being honored or it could feel like too whimsical and feel kind of like cheesy. But I don't know, at least for me, that that juxtaposition really, really worked. And everything was held in balance so that I was able to feel what the characters were feeling, but also be able to appreciate, you know, this beautiful world that was created. Which is such a difficult balance tonally to hit. I think in the hands of another creator, uh, it could have gone too far in the direction of this feeling disconnected from reality. Like this is so fantastical and the characters are so... Uh, much larger than life that they are beyond they're almost like created beings and not humans they each of these characters still feel so so human and I think the the dark moments in this movie kind of come unexpectedly too so it, it kind of catches you off guard but it mm -hmm. doesn't dwell too long in any of them uh, to really sit too deeply in any of those emotions it kind of has this moment and then we're on to the next uh chaotic adventure next you know like it it doesn't choose to dwell and languish in those emotions too deeply um but still giving them enough respect for them that's difficult to do 
And that also kind of keeps with the whole, like, this is an issue of a magazine feel. Because, I mean, <laughs> yes. when you're when you're reading an article or, or whatever, it's, it's probably unlikely that you're just going to, like, read something and then, like, stop and sit and, like, stew in those emotions. Mm, Oftentimes, yeah. it's just like, oh, okay, yep, I felt that for a second. Floop turn the page, next thing. Um, So I think even in that, it was mimicking this theme of going through a magazine article. Yeah, very true. That the pace felt like it was this this, uh, constant speed moving forward. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like you're on this this, uh, ride in amusement park and you're on the train in your seat and it's moving at a consistent pace. And but there's all these things going on around you. We never, we never like slow down too heavily in one sequence or speed up really heavily in any. We're just this consistent pace through the world, um, which, yeah, as you mentioned, at least that's an interesting observation around it being in line with how we consume the news. You're just moving on from one one article to the next, taking taking all the information in and. Oftentimes that information leads to emotions, but you're on to the next one. Yep. We're just flipping through that magazine. Yep. Yep. And there's this foray of all (laughs) kinds of things happening. Yes. Some very interesting characters all Mm -hmm. in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think the other, the other aspect of this is that a lot of the, topics that he he covers in these vignettes are are resonant to types of figures or events that happen are happening in in our in our real life society as well you know like the 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 world of art and you see the the commercialization of um art and and the business side of art being handled by Adrian Brody's character. You see um, the artistic and creative process and kind of the the non-linear way that that unfolds through Benicio del Toro's character. Um, even in, in Timothy Chalamet and this like youthful spirit of revolution and wanting to change the world, like there, that is these are all things that we are familiar with in our in our recurrent reality that are just um, dramatized. the The volume is turned up on them in these vignettes, but they are they are rooted in reality. They are not outside of reality. Um, so I think that that helps with us feeling invested in and connected with these stories is because we we see the distillation of them in in our own daily lives in our society too today you know they aren't made up worlds or made up uh, premises yeah yeah that that moment with adrian Brody's character where, where he says all artists sell all their work it's what makes you an artist selling it <laughs> that like i've i'm still thinking about this like mm-hmm. days later um and just that that commercialization of art like you said it's it's so real and we see it all over the place. But I also love that this film starts us out there with, with Adrian Brody's character saying that. And then Bill Murray's character is almost like the foil to that because they're, they're pushing up against a deadline. 
They uh, have more features and more words than they can fit into the the paper, uh, you know, so they have to decide what to do. What are they going to cut? And Bill Murray basically says, like, no, we're going to print it all. Get more paper. And so that, like, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to make art the way that it should be. I'm going to honor these writers and present their work as they want it to be. It's such just a it's an impractical business decision, obviously, but it, it's so kind of countercultural to a lot that we we see and experience uh, in, I mean, really any medium of of creativity. So I I thought that 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 foil was was really interesting, um, and and it's an easy one to to miss if you're not if you're not looking for it. And yeah, it was just kind of subtly slipped in there, which is just so fun. Yeah, it's almost giving us a like a buffet of perspectives and ideas to chew mm-hmm. on in such an interesting vehicle uh, for us to think about them. Uh, the other one that really stuck out to me was the relationship that Simone has with uh, Benicio del Toro's artist character with Moses, and it's it's highly dramatized in this. But that that encouragement and that uh, can, the belief that she has and his artistic ability when he is fully doubting himself and his ability to produce anything of value and the way that she is an encourager they call her you know his his muse or whatnot but I think in a lot of ways she is um she is helping to encourage him about his his true abilities and his gifts and his identity like it's and it's it's all dramatized and it's made to be for a lot of these funny moments between them and she's this like harsh prison guard and whatnot. And it's, it's all so ridiculous, but that type of relationship and that type of encourager and support system that creators need when they are at those moments where they're like, I don't know what to make or what to do next, or I have no ideas and they're lacking inspiration that um, the support systems in their life are so vital. Uh, We get to see portrayed through this in such a, comical out of the ordinary way yeah and and even in that relationship like you said like there's moments of 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 humor and then there's moments of like nope just get it together you need to do this thing but there's there's also just so much tenderness there as well and I mean I sure wasn't expecting that um and you especially for like this idea of somebody's muse you you wouldn't expect that type of relationship uh dynamic from that you know artist and muse typically has a different you know power dynamic going on um <laughs> yes. but in this like she like you said like she was the encourager but i also love that in in some ways she was almost like his advocate too um like when when adrian brody's character is like hey like you need to get this painting done like is is it done and moses wants another year but Simone says, nope, it's ready. You're ready. And yeah, uh, yeah. Like just those little moments were, were so interesting and so unexpected. But I also think it was, it was really inter- That was my favorite of the three vignettes was the Moses and Simone um, storyline. And, and I think it, it has to do with there being so many different kind of flavors to 
that. So you have Moses and Simone being so like encouraging, but also, I don't know, like it was just kind of like tender. (laughs) And then you have Adrian Brody's character who is all about like money and getting this done and it was he was so frenetic energy yes (laughs) so good and then it's all being told by tilda swinton's character who has another (laughs) level of frenetic energy so you were just constantly shifting like tones and and how things felt but also the the pace at which people were talking and moving would would switch depending on who is in the frame and there was just so much uh interest in that first vignette uh and I, I think it has to do with all of those different components and the the changes in speed the changes in color like we talked about um just made it so interesting. And then of course the characters are fun to follow along as well. But I just think from a a pacing perspective and a storytelling perspective, uh, for me, that was the most fun and the most interesting to follow along because I didn't know what was going to come next, but I also didn't know how it was going to be shown to us, whatever happened next. So I was really on the edge of my seat, uh, which made it all the more interesting and exciting. That was my favorite one as well. I thought also the the backdrop of Moses being in prison was really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. He could have been anyone. He could have been just an artist in some city in Paris. But the intentional choice to have him be a prisoner and to have created this work while in prison and uh, – people beginning to see and recognize how much he has to offer beyond just the things that he's done in his past. And uh, it almost, it's this humanizing look into the prison system and the way that we treat prisoners and um, how much we, we sometimes can strip them of their humanity. But then when we don't, we're able to, we're able to bring out those sides of them, even that that shot sequence of all of the dis- different artistic creations of the different prisoners in the class, you know, like the one who mm-hmm. made like the tower out of uh, <laughs> toothpicks and yeah. the swan, the, I feel like ducks in a row. Like it's just, it was so sweet and beautiful to see even just that small shot sequence and the, the context that it was, it was communicated to us in. Um, that alone gives us enough to think about, let alone all the other things that are swirling around, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think especially that that moment uh, when Moses first attends the art class and he has to say something and, you know, what, what he was saying about basically he's slowly killing himself and he hopes that art will essentially stop that. Um, I thought that that was also yeah. really really impactful and uh, again it was like the the perfect amount of emotions and you know we see how a couple of other inmates react to what he said and then we just get back into the action of him creating art but I, I think in addition to like what you said like humanizing people who are in prison I think also showing just the gift that art can be um, and that it's not just some like frivolous exercise it's not this like silly thing that we do, but it's actually really, really important. And it can have a bigger impact on us than I I think we realize. And so again, just like this meditation on 
art and what is art and what is our relationship with art and all of that I think is also really it's a worthwhile thought exercise to go through mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep the related uh comment that I'll have on that is the the way that we receive art is often also so much um dictated by the way that it's presented and framed to us there's that moment where mm, yeah. Adrian Brody is talking with, I believe, his, his family members that are also art exhibitors or something like that. And they're talking about how like, what what is this creation? Like, oh, it's modern art. And they're like, well, what what is that though? And Adrian Brody's like, it doesn't matter. It's what whatever we tell the people that it is. Something along those lines. And I thought that was an interesting little commentary and little jab too at the way that uh, – the public consumes art is often so influenced by the way that it's presented to us. And, um, you know, it doesn't go, it doesn't get too philosophical in that either. It's just one little comment, but man, your mind's just kind of reeling on that and, and chewing on that. And there's so much, so much else that's going on, but those little comments here and there that leave you with so much to think about is, is really fun. And then I just I loved the uh, the fact that Moses painted his you know his masterpiece on the prison walls, <laughs> like it was yes. so good. It, it was almost this like middle finger to Adrian Brody's character of I know what you want me to create, but I'm gonna create what I want to create, and this is it. And if you want this, you're gonna have to really really work for it. And I thought that that was just brilliant. And even just the the almost unveiling of that and like Ma saying that it's a, a fresco and then Adrian Brody's character realizing exactly what that means and then freaking out about it. And I just thought the progression of that was also so hilarious. And the from from triumph to despair back to kind of somewhere in the middle in the end was just a roller coaster to be on. There was an interesting shot too where we almost get the camera from inside the wall and we see Adrian Brody like grasping out the wall but from inside the wall and it's almost transparent looking like that was really a fascinating, fascinating shot too. There were a lot of really interesting shots like all throughout but I feel like especially in that Moses and Simone section, there are just some fun things uh, that they did with the camera that again, just made it more interesting. And they went unexpected places, even with the camera. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's just a good time. <laughs> the other one that I love is like all of the um, art exhibitors going into the room and the, yes. nearly the entire frame is pitch black. And there's this yes. tiny door frame lit up and you just see these shadows and silhouettes of all the men going into the room. Um, and then it the door closes and there's like a single light and it's dark for a solid like a few minutes as you just hear the dialogue and then it happens the unveiling and that that whole version was so visually exciting and what a way to just build anticipation you know like the the characters are building in an anticipation and it was just yeah. a great visual way to make us also like oh my gosh what are we going to see next is it was really good to get us into their their mind, their minds, so that we were able to be just as in odd uh, 
with what Moses created as they were. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Any other final thoughts about the French Dispatch before we wrap up? Yes. Yeah. So in uh, in our episode of The Last Duel, I got into my soapbox because that movie was set in France and they spoke with British accents. And the French Dispatch, I feel like, did it right because <laughs> it is an American newspaper filled with expats who are living in France and writing mm-hmm. this newspaper. But in every vignette, I think, there are French characters who speak in French and we yep. get to read subtitles. And so I feel like that was that like brilliant uh kind of balance of we're in this other nation they don't all speak English so just you know get ready for that but also yeah yeah the main characters that we're following are largely American so you will hear some English so it was just it was lovely to have to read subtitles sometimes and Mm -hmm. even the way that the subtitles were on the screen too I thought were super interesting because the subtitles didn't always go in places that you expected them to go so it's almost like your eyes needed to like scan the whole screen to find where the subtitles were which I just thought was fun and just a more interesting way to do it so great job lines of text (laughs) that were said after the previous line but the line of text is above the previous line (laughs) you're just like wait but I think that that's kind of like the disorienting nature of also being in a foreign country too. It's just like the, the the stimulation of words and ideas and translating them in real time. Like he almost captures how disorienting that can be and how humbling it is when you are outside of your normal context where you can speak the language. Like you are at the mercy of, of the environment that you're in, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, so well done. So good. So good. All right. Well, this was our review and discussion of the French Dispatch. Uh, You can find it available to rent on, I think, a couple of different streaming platforms. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. This podcast is fueled by our passion for stories and connection. And it's something we continue to do each week solely because we love it. This is our strategic whimsy experiment, and we encourage you to find a way to infuse whimsy into your day. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune into your favorite shows. Drop us a review, letting us know your thoughts about the French Dispatch. You can connect with us on Instagram at Strategic Whimsy Experiment, on Twitter at Strategic Whimsy, or you can email us at strategicwhimsyexperiment at gmail.com. We will be back next week to discuss the newest uh, Guillermo del Toro film, Nightmare Alley. We hope you have an amazing week, and we'll see you very soon.